Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. That was the Nazareth song, My White Bicycle. But these days, you're lucky if you own a white bicycle, or for that matter, a bicycle of any color. A bicycling boom has emerged amid the pandemic as people search for a socially distanced outlet for recreation and a safer mode of transportation. Most bike stores are besieged by the demand from would-be bike buyers for just about anything on two wheels. Mechanics, too, are overwhelmed by massive wait lists of customers requests for a tune-up on their old bikes, some of which have been dragged out from the basement for the first time in years. Three local cycling experts give us the lowdown on how a 19th century wheeled invention is leaving a lot of modern-day Teslas in the dust. Later in the show, this Father's Day is especially poignant for black fathers already engaged in hard conversations with their children, especially sons, about police violence and recent street protests. I I literally said, I don't know what else to tell my sons other than become white. And I say that in all sincerity. Like, it, it is a thing where you can tell them to be respectful. You can tell them to just obey the officer. You can tell them to not run. You can tell them to not do this or do that. And we have seen time after time that it doesn't make a difference. Our conversation with two black fathers teaching their sons how to be safe. But first, joining me remotely, Marty Miseradino, owner, manager, and buyer of FitWorks, a top-rated bicycle store and bike-fitting studio in Peabody, Massachusetts. Hi, Marty. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad to have you. Also with me, Tom Rohde, marketing director for Parley Cycles, a bicycle manufacturer based in Beverly, Massachusetts, known for making the first custom carbon fiber bike frames. Hello, Tom. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having us. Great to have you as well. And Becca Wolfson, executive director of the Boston Cyclist Union. Welcome, Becca. Thanks, Callie. Happy to be here. And Becca, I want to start with you, because when the lockdown happened, when the governor said, OK, we're going to everybody's going to stay at home, bikes were not initially on the essential list of businesses. But yet Mass Bike, the Bicycle Coalition and uh, the Cyclist Union that you represent lobbied for it to be essential business and stay open. Uh, explain why. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is something that we saw across the nation and worked with organizations like ours um, in Philadelphia and D.C. that were doing similar lobbying. But basically, uh, you know, people's 
mobility was reduced dramatically. Um, there were fears about being able to use public transportation, especially at the start of the pandemic, and not being in an enclosed transit vehicle was uh, something that people were prioritizing for their um, public health and, and safety, and people wanted to ride bikes. And, you know, we said, if mechanic uh, auto shops are able to operate and, and keep fixing cars, then bike shops should be able to keep fixing bicycles, which are essential for people to get around. And especially when we're thinking about um, social inequality, it's a very affordable means of transportation as opposed to um, owning and affording a car. So we lobbied for that. Um, the state very quickly listened to our calls um, to constituents uh, and, and said, yes, bike shops are essential and they may stay open. And the city of Somerville was actually the first municipality to make that statement and, and Boston quickly followed suit as well. And we we're very happy that um, folks at the city and state level listened and, and made that distinction for us. Well, right after that happened, immediately people started looking at bikes um, with a different kind of interest. Uh, here's a voicemail from Landry's Bicycles in Boston, Massachusetts, and it really speaks to how the demand uh, hit the bike shops. Thanks for calling Landry's Bicycles in Boston. Due to increased demand for new bikes and repair services during COVID-19, we have been really busy and we are unable to take your call at this time. There you go. Um, that is just one of the voicemails. I imagine something like that was uh, on your machine, Marty Miseradino, at Fitworks as you were locked down and then opened up uh, later. Tell me about your experience. How long yeah. were you in shutdown and when did you open up? Well, our situation is a little bit different. There's absolutely a bike boom going on, which is fantastic for cycling overall. Um, our shop is a, is a bit different than your typical bike shop, uh, maybe a local bike shop or even a big shop like Landry's, in that we're a specialty shop and we're a very niche business. And then our focus is doing a bike fitting with person, uh, with a person one-on-one -on -one and a comprehensive bike fitting process to not only optimize their position, but then use that information to uh, advise them on a new bike. And what happened very quickly for us is that nobody could come into the shop. Um, yes, we could do tune-ups, uh, which is literally less than 10% of our revenues. So 90% of our revenues was cut off because we could not have people into the shop. So while this massive bike boom was going on for family bikes and kids' bikes and hybrid bikes, none of which we sell, we were shut down for two months completely. So there is this massive boom going on, but our shop was left out of it. Um, we didn't get back into the shop uh, to do bicycle fittings until the last week in May. And so the bike boom already passed us by in that respect. And the, the, the thing for us is that in truth and reality, we are a higher price point bicycle shop in that we don't sell sub $1,000 bikes. And that's really where the bike boom was. So for us, it's been a little bit different. We're getting back on our feet. We're, we're busy as ever in terms of the backlog of services and bike fittings. Um, but right now, our focus is to get people back into the shop one-on-one -on -one for that bike fitting process that we're known for. And uh, we'll see how it goes. 
But Marty, uh, the word is that if uh, people are looking longingly at $2,000 bikes, too, <laughs> that it's not just, I mean, the, yes, there's a bike boom, obviously. That's where I'd be on the $300 and $400 level. But, but uh, you know, the, the intensity of interest in bikes now in a way that hasn't been there before has, has left some people looking at your inventory in a different way. Yes, it's a great point. What's exciting is that we're we're really looking forward to the future where all those people getting back into cycling, um, bringing those old bikes back out of the garage, as you mentioned, that they're going to fall back in love with the sport. And eventually, we'll see them down the line for that bike fitting. Uh, but you're right. I mean, that price point in terms of availability is starting to creep up. Thankfully, those bikes are still available to, to our clients, and, and we're starting to sell them again. But But you are right. Uh, Tom Rohde, you're the marketing director for Parley Cycles, and as we mentioned, uh, known for making the first custom carbon fiber bike frames. Um, how's business? Yeah, it's 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 really good, despite the fact, um, you know, whereas as a manufacturing company, you know, we were more restricted in, in terms of we were forced to close and, and really only able to fully reopen uh, on, on the May 19th date. So that's that's frustrating as as a manufacturer to have a lot of our customers who are retailers like Marty, you know, wanting to get product, especially in the spring, everyone gets anxious um, and and not being able to fulfill that. But I, I think we are we're able to kind of adjust to the new normal now in our facility with social distancing and and all the cleanliness protocol and and I think everyone's happy to get back to work and to catch up with that demand. Um, but I, I think as a as a company, we're really buoyed by the numbers. You know, talking kind of anecdotally to to our retailers, um, what they're seeing, um, but also kind of, you know, some of the data that's starting to come out. I mean, I, I saw an interesting statistic this week that was published by People for Bikes, which is one of the largest advocacy groups in our industry. And they're saying that 9% of U.S. adults started or resumed riding after a long period of not riding. That's a huge number. And then they had a follow-on number, which was that 87% of those people that started riding again plan to continue riding even after um, all these restrictions are lifted. You know, so for us, big picture, um, this is great. More people riding um, at the end of the day is great for the industry, but it's it's great for, and I'm sure Becca could speak to this a, a lot better than I could, but you know, it's 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 better for infrastructure. It's better for communities. Um, it's better for the environment. You know, there's just so much positive that comes out of people riding bikes. We're just excited about that. It's, it's, it's hard in this time with everything going on in this country uh, to find things to be excited about. But, you know, when you see groups of families out riding and kids riding bikes and, and you know, you can't help but have a smile when you, when you ride uh, and, it, and it's good for your health. So we're just happy about that. And the demand stuff will all get sorted out in the future. Yes, Becca, you are the person I want to talk to about this because um, the renewed interest, this is where you live. And I'm fascinated by all of the statistics that show that people who had bikes, you know, somewhere in the attic or the basement and hadn't looked at them and hadn't ridden them in 100 years are dragging them out now to try to get them repaired. Some because they can't buy a new one, (laughs) Um, but others because let me go back to something familiar, but they haven't been on them. So tell me a story about what you're hearing from people who are rediscovering the bike. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as Tom just mentioned, what we're hearing from a lot of shops and just from people in the community is there are a lot more families biking with their children, whereas, you know, 
city streets aren't always welcoming and inviting for our most vulnerable road users, for um, you know, seniors, for women, for children, for people of color, for people who have some type of more marginalized identity and um, you know, don't have that dominant comfort of existing and, and moving about our streets. And when there were fewer cars on the road, that did lead some people to say, you know, this feels a little bit safer. I'm, I'm going to try this. And so um, with, you know, fewer cars on the road, there were a lot more families and, and people willing to try biking for the first time. Um, the one challenge with that is that when there are fewer people driving, the ones who do drive often drive faster. Um, you have that feeling of an unimpeded space ahead of you. And so that meant, you know, we saw the need and, and cities saw the need to add separated infrastructure at a much higher pace. Um, and separated bike lanes are spaces where there is a much less likelihood that, you know, a car will be able to move into a bike lane because there's some type of physical separation and it just creates safety and comfort and, and inviting space. And so a lot of the cities, especially in the Metro Core and in Somerville, Cambridge, Boston and Brookline, were looking at expediting safer separated lanes. And so in the city of Boston, uh, Mayor Walsh called that the Healthy Streets Initiative and identified a network of streets uh, that would be connected to each other. And that's, you know, one thing that's really important with separated infrastructure is that it connects to something. You don't want to create a bridge to nowhere. And so the mayor's transportation department did design this network of separated bike lanes that should be implemented next week. Um, oh, next week. Let's let's pause there. So that's that's big news. I, w- I want to highlight that. So next mm-hmm. week, say it again. <laughs> yeah, next week. It was supposed to happen last week, um, but due to protests and people taking to the streets, there was a pause on that to make the space and not impede those actions. So um, there, there's a very good chance that people biking downtown next week will see some separated bike lanes and you know some people never get to experience that and once they do they realize wow this is so much more comfortable than i could have imagined why don't we have these in every neighborhood hmm if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me remotely are Marty Miseradino of FitWorks, Tom Rohde of Parley Cycles, and Becca Wolfson, you just heard her, of the Boston Cyclist Union. We're discussing the latest bicycling boom amid the pandemic. Uh, let's take a listen to Elijah Evans, executive director of Bikes Not Bombs in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. He's talking about the shop's reopening process. So we've been open since April 7th. Um, we were fortunate when the city and the state declared uh, bike shops as essential businesses, and we wanted to reopen immediately, just given the role that we play, particularly providing services to marginalized communities. On the service side, you can come through the front door, fill out a, a ticket, that describes what your issues are, and then ring a bell, and a staff member will come out and help you. That's really helped uh, keep staff members safe. We're fortunate to have not had any knock-on-wood issues with COVID at the bike shop. And we've heard from customers directly that they feel safe as well. What helps us stand apart from other bike shops is that we collect a huge amount of donated bikes to use in our program. During the crisis, it's been an advantage, I think, for us to be able to have a mix of new bicycles to offer and also refurbished bicycles. 
That was Elijah Evans from Bikes Not Bombs in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. Uh, So, Marty Miseradino, here's something that I think is interesting that relates to you and um, the high-end product that that you sell and that you work with customers to uh, adjust a custom fit. Peloton sales surged 66%, (laughs) 66% from a year ago to 524.6 million. They said last month, that would be April, that they had the largest class ever with more than 23,000 people streaming from home. If people know the Peloton bike, it's stationary, and then you have to pay, after you buy the bike, you have to pay for the classes that come on the screen, which uh, the classes are streamed. Just a note. The spinning bike, that's what we're most familiar with, is $2,245. The treadmill is $4,295. So my question to you, Marty, do you think because people couldn't get to you who are offering a bike that you'd ride outside, they went to the kind that they could bring inside as a standalone. They paid the same amount of money. Uh, You know, it's a great question. I think it's a combination. I think if you are somebody who enjoys indoor cycling and spinning classes, uh, now you can't go to the gym, you want to get your cycling fix, and that is certainly a way to do it. Uh, It's so convenient. Um, I don't necessarily see that people went indoors on a Peloton because they couldn't buy a bicycle to go outside. I think there is a separate population, but obviously some crossover. There certainly is a trend with the Peloton and some cycling apps where more and more people are coming back inside because of the traffic and the accidents and, um, you know, the nervousness of being on the roads with distractions. So I think there's a big combination of factors that, that is making Peloton explode. But it's related to a bicycle, and I'm happy that it's related to a bicycle. As a former spinning instructor, I'm very mad that I didn't come <laughs> up with that idea. But that's here nor there. <laughs> Okay. Let me ask this, too, because um, I hadn't thought about this, but bikes, whether Pelotons inside or bikes outside, the kind you you sell, Marty, this is a solo activity you can do for exercise. Now, you can be in a group, of course, but um, this is a perfect storm because gyms were closed um, and some continue to be closed. So talk to me about that and, and how you've seen that impact. Well, um, just that fact that gyms are closed, and if somebody's primary focus was was doing uh, cycling classes, spinning classes, um, that was completely gone. Um, So if they enjoyed that, if they felt healthier doing it, really Peloton or some form of of cycling app with their existing bike really were the only options. So Perfect Storm is right, without a doubt. Gym's closed. I still want to spin. I don't have a bike outside. I'm not paying a membership. I'm buying a Peloton. So, so it all worked out. Mm. It all worked out. And some of those people are avid outdoor cyclists. Uh, and some of those people who are not outdoor cyclists who are riding the bikes may start to think, you know what? I, I enjoy it. Why don't I get a real bike and uh, get outside? And so we'll see that down the line. Absolutely. Hmm. All right, Tom Rohde, let's talk about something that people have heard uh, in connection to food, and that's the supply chain. I mean, I never thought I'd be talking about supply chains as much as I have been since COVID-19 started, but this is at the heart of both the shortage of bikes, but something bigger. So the shutdown led to a you know spike in interest and then this massive shortage. So explain to us how bikes were really at the center of this supply chain issue. 
Sure. Well, you know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is bikes are really, truly a global product. And a bicycle that you'll walk into a store and see might have had 270 days of lead time to get in the beginning of the process to the point that you're seeing it in a store. And components will come from all over the world. You know, the tires might be manufactured in Thailand. The shifters might be manufactured in Japan. Uh, the fork could be made in Taiwan. The frame could be made in China. And at some point, all that stuff's going to get aggregated and assembled and then transported to your retailer. And, you know, there's lots of steps along the way. And what's happened is, and I think everyone knows that, you know, Asia clearly was about, let's just say round numbers, three months ahead of us with, with the COVID outbreak. And so the supply chain on the manufacturing side in Asia was disrupted well in advance of when, you know, we all were disrupted here in terms of retail and wholesale. So that was going on, disrupting the supply chain. And then all of a sudden, you know, you also have huge disruptions with transportation. I mean, the number of flights, you know, was down, I think, at, at one point to 5% of typical demand. And so, you know, everyone knows underneath the passenger compartment is the cargo compartment. And a lot of cargo moves in passenger planes. And there just wasn't that transportation infrastructure. And, and let's face it also... I mean, there was a crisis to move PPE, you know, around the world globally in in this time frame. Personal protection equipment for nurses and Correct. doctors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly, mm -hmm. and 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 that takes priority uh, over over bicycle inner tubes or, or chains or things like that, that that are getting moved. I promise you. Um, so there's been this kind of ripple on effect, and then when there is a sense of increased demand, which I don't think anyone saw it coming. I, you know, I, I think we were all concerned talking to our retailers. Uh, in February and March, hey, what's what's going to happen? No one knew about who was going to be essential, who wasn't, what was the extent of the outbreak, you know, when when were we going to return to any sense of normalcy? So there was there was that whole time factor in this equation as well. Um, and certainly, no, I, I don't think of any manufacturer was ramping up their manufacturing in January, February, and and March. And so now it's just this this kind of hurry up. And again, with with lead times anywhere from 90 to 270 days, typically in the industry. You know, you can't just flip a switch and have a huge number of bikes in a store tomorrow. So, so the challenges have been significant. And then even talking to retailers, there's so much demand for labor of people bringing in bikes to, to be repaired. Um, and you mentioned earlier, you know, they've been dragged out of a basement or a shed or something. It competes with the labor to actually assemble the new bikes that they're trying to put it out for sale. Um, and, and, you know, with all the challenges everyone has with labor at the last mile of, of delivering that bike, um, that's been a challenge too. So, you know, there's been a series of challenges that have, I, I think, led to issues for um, retailers and, and manufacturers globally. I think there's just no way around it. It's going to take some time for that to recover. And, you know, certainly we're, we're, we're talking to retailers every day and, and just asking everyone to, to be patient. And, um, you know, people have been great through this whole process understanding that in the context of everything else that's going on with people's health and everything else, um, you know, having to wait two more weeks for your bike is a small problem to have. Yeah. Now, let me also just follow up with one thing, because I had not pondered this, but of course, it makes sense, given what you just said about where the bikes come from, China and the tariffs. So there were tariffs on bikes, right? Um, pretty high. And that kind of slowed the amount of bikes and parts coming this way as well, even before you get to COVID. When we start talking about uh, perfect storms of supply chain and then, you know, uh, you know, all of that. That's a great point, Callie. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that's really, there's been a kind of disarray in, in the supply chain uh, due to the Trump tariffs going back, uh, I'd say about 18 months. It's been a 
kind of an under the radar problem, but but people in the industry have definitely been dealing with it. It's very difficult to move a lot of that manufacturing around. Um, you know, again, in terms of terms of timing, can't just if you have a, a a tire factory in location A, you can't move a tire factory to location B overnight. It just right. doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, the, the supply chain has been challenged. I think for both component manufacturers and bicycle manufacturers um, for for a long time. So it probably wasn't good timing for 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 this mm. for this surge, if you will. Um, let's take a listen to Travis London. He's a sales and service manager at Bike Boom in Somerville, and he's uh, also speaking about the demand they've been experiencing. So we have been sold out of bikes um, since, like, March with everything that's going on, and that's just been a big challenge for us. We've had to turn away a lot of business that uh, could have been possible without it. So, I mean, one thing that's for us is, like, we've had a huge influx of new customers getting bikes tuned up, and we've seen, like, a resurrection of old bikes, looking people looking for service on bikes that they've had either sitting around for a long time or weren't, they haven't been used in a long time, which has been great and i think we're going to see like a continued increase of of people cycling in the in the greater boston area uh, so picking up from what uh, Tom just said and a little bit of what Travis said um Marty Misradino um you have to if you're a retailer sort of do whatever other retailers have to do kind of have an educated guess about how many bikes you're going to sell any season right so going into this season, you could not have predicted all of these various, you knew the tariff situation, right. but you didn't know anything else. So that was a problem. Yeah. So our again, our shop is a little bit different in that because we're so one-on-one, we don't carry a, a large inventory. Um, most bicycle shops out there will create what are called pre-season orders and, and use their crystal ball to figure out what's going to sell and whatnot. Nobody had a crystal ball in this situation. Um, so while the crystal ball was great that all the inventory is gone for us, um, we don't uh, we don't keep a lot of inventory. So it's easier for us to kind of roll with the punches and that if everything shut down and nobody could buy a bicycle, we wouldn't have been stuck. A lot of shops would potentially have gone out of business. Uh, and, and now the flip side of that is somebody comes in for a bike fitting, wants to order a bike. And now we're working on the, you know, the supply shortage if, if it's out there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that we're in a good spot speaking of fit work, um, mm-hmm. but still challenges out there. Yeah, yeah. So, Becca Wolfson, um, Boston has never been thought of as a bike-friendly town. Now, you just made an announcement about some changes that are going to happen um, as a result of this moment in time where we're looking at uh, lots of folks taking two bikes. A lot of families, the sales with uh, kid bikes have gone through the roof. They're talking about 121% for adult leisure bikes, not the kind of specialized bikes that Marty sells. Um, And kids' bikes are up 56% because families want to have an activity. You know, we're not necessarily kind of friendly here in the greater Boston area, maybe other places in Massachusetts. But does this new demand now, other than what's happened in Boston already, put pressure uh, to make us a little bit more friendly overall, forever, not just in this moment? Absolutely. Uh, You know, again, 
what we've always benefited from in Boston is this concept of safety and numbers. You know, we've been lagging on infrastructure. We'd like to see the city put in safe bike lanes at a much faster pace than is happening in, in the region. Um, and this is a North American problem. You know, it's not just unique to here. And as more people are trying biking, we're hoping that they really see, wow, I feel the freedom, I feel this mobility, I have this sense that, you know, this is more affordable than owning a car. Um, and, and I feel safer again in these pandemic times than being in an enclosed transit vehicle. And, and I will say we're not trying to pull people off of transit. We're advocating for better frequency on, on transit and buses as well. But um, there are more people on the road that will have that safety in numbers, but will also have those numbers that demand safety. Um, so yes, so there is an imperative to provide safer spaces to protect people who are on bikes. Um, another thing too that I'll say is the city um, in recognizing that, you know, people need affordable ways to travel, has been working on making bike share more accessible, especially to essential workers. So when you say that, do you mean like the Blue Bike program when you say yes. bike share? Exactly. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yep. So, mm -hmm. so Blue Bikes is a municipally owned program that has um, upright sort of heavier bikes that are really great for urban travel. And you can pay by the trip. You can get a weekly pass, a monthly pass, an annual pass. And, and those passes are $100 per year. And the city has made those passes free for 90 days for essential workers. So people who work in hospitals and in the transportation industry that was just also expanded to people who work at grocery stores and pharmacies and in Main Street's districts, which is a, a really great way to provide affordable, accessible travel, especially right now. Um, also the Boston Cyclist Union, uh, my organization just launched a program where we're offering $5 annual Blue Bikes passes. Again, that's reduced from $100 um, in a partnership with the Wagner Foundation and people on limited incomes can get those uh, by getting a code from us. So if anybody's listening and, and knows anyone who might be interested in, in looking for an affordable way to get around, you know, while new bikes aren't available, bike share is a great way to also try biking in the city. And Becca, I had heard that the Blue Bike program has exploded as well during this time. Um, what are you hearing? Yeah, in you know the first maybe eight weeks of the pandemic, when there really was more of a lockdown, there was less mobility. But now that mobility is increasing. Um, every time I'm outside, I see lots and lots of people on blue bikes. So I you know haven't taken a good dive into those numbers yet, but I can imagine they're only going to keep increasing. And I, I don't want to end this conversation without your talking about bike to market, because you're really trying to reach out to marginalized communities that haven't had bikes accessible to them. And you go to farmers markets and do repairs, a kind of a pop-up repair, as both Tom and Marty have, have said, that that repair piece has gotten huge now um, with people with old bikes. Exactly. Yeah. So Bike to Market is a program that we run at farmers markets in neighborhoods without bike shops um, and in under-resourced lower income communities. So we're in East Boston, which, you know, if, if you have a flat tire or your brakes need fixing, there's no bike shop in East Boston. And it's really challenging for people to get their bikes repaired. So the farmers market in East Boston every Wednesday is really popular for us 
we bring mechanics and we have a, a pop-up bike station and, and we fix bikes. Um, the repair is free. We just charge as little as we can for the parts. And if someone can't pay, we just do the work anyways. Um, we're, so we're at East Boston, we're um, in Northern Dorchester. We partner with the Food Project uh, at the Dudley Town Common Market on Thursdays. We're at Roxbury Crossing on Fridays um, and in Mattapan on Saturdays. And, and our goal is to get people on bikes to fix at as low a cost as we can, especially when people's wallets are being pinched more, biking is more affordable, um, and, and people are bringing those bikes out of the basement. Um, the new uh, phraseology, some of you may have heard this, is that buying a bike these days is like buying toilet paper uh, <laughs> because uh, yeah. it's uh, there is a demand. Um, I'm going to do a quick round robin with all of you, and I'd like you to each speak to the excitement of being or the good feeling of being on a bike. Just something short, starting with you, Tom Rohde. <laughs> Well, for us, um, you know, be, being on a bike is, is really all about freedom in every context. It's the closest thing that a human can feel to flying and, and, and moving efficiently uh, under your own power. So for us, it's, it's just it's a great activity and it's we feel fortunate we've turned it into our livelihoods. All right, Marty Miseradino. Riding a bike for me personally gives me the opportunity to either train for something and, and, and reach a goal or just to go out and enjoy some surroundings that you don't get to see when you're in a car. Uh, it's, it's really interesting where I can ride the same roads over and over again. And every time on a, I'm on a nice bike ride, I see something new. And uh, for me, that's pretty exciting. Becca. Yeah, to me, biking has always been about freedom and access and also now more than ever connection. You know, I will stay in my bubble in my house for days on end and then I'll decide, oh, geez, I really need to get out and ride my bike and I'll come into more, you know, distant contact with people than I have in days. I'll smile and nod and lock eyes, you know, with folks I pass on the sidewalk and just feel that I'm part of a world with other humans again and connected. Well, that's a perfect place to stop. I thank all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks so much for having us. Marty Miseradino is the owner, manager, and buyer of Fitworks, a top-rated bicycle store and bike fitting studio in Peabody, Massachusetts. Tom Rohde is the marketing director for Parley Cycles, a bicycle manufacturer based in Beverly, Massachusetts, known for making the first custom carbon fiber bike frames. And Becca Wolfson is the executive director of the Boston Cyclist Union. Coming up... How do black fathers raise their children, especially sons, in a world that assumes who they are based on the color of their skin? And have the events of recent weeks raised the stakes in how these fathers protect their offspring from physical harm and emotional damage? Two local black fathers share their thoughts. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Here's Seath Mann, a black father featured on NBC this week, speaking about a conversation he knows he must have with his child. 
I'm starting to have conversations with an eight-year-old boy who would love to remain innocent, and I would love to remain innocent. I have to start preparing him for things that you shouldn't have to prepare an eight-year-old for. It makes the joy of fatherhood a lot more complicated. In black families, it's known as the talk, the discussion black parents, like Seath, have with their kids about what to do should they end up in an interaction with a police officer. The talk takes on a new poignancy this Father's Day as the nation mourns George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks, both killed at the hands of police officers, and demonstrators protest the recent police killings of unarmed black men. Joining me remotely, Emmett G. Price III, professor of worship, church, and culture, and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Hi, Emmett. Hey, Kelly. Good to, good to be here with you. Thanks for joining me. And Matt Presbury, founder of the Black Fathers Foundation, creator of the Black Fathers Facebook group, and educator in the Howard County, Maryland public school system. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Matt, um, you've said that you and your wife have held back nothing early on in talking with your children about these issues. Uh, tell me when you started having those conversations and how old your kids are. My children are 21, 19, 15, and 13. And I don't know when I actually sat my children down um, how old they were. But I know that throughout the course of time, we have discussed varying incidents in depth. And, and, you know, and it goes well beyond policing. I think early on in their lives, we started talking about blackness and understanding that and getting them in, in tune with history and culture and, and just really getting an understanding of how the society works in general, the things that we have to deal with, the, the precautions we have to take and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Emmett Price, same question to you. How old are your children, and when do you remember beginning to have the conversations with them? Yes, my sons are 17 and 15, um, and both of them were five years old when they were individually and independently called the N-word in kindergarten. Uh, we live in Framingham, Massachusetts, and have used the public school system here. And so uh, our conversations have had to start as a result of that initial infraction of their personhood. And of course, they were oblivious. My oldest son, uh, when he was five, uh, one of his Brazilian friends came up to him after the incident occurred and told him that what uh, this person said to him was not polite and was not nice. And then my youngest son, again, five years old, it happened, you know, again, and, and one of his white friends kind of told his parent, and his parent called me that evening and asked me, were we okay? And of course, I'm oblivious to, to what's going on. So I asked him, you know, in response to what? And so he tells me, so I had to, you know, pull my youngest son aside, and both were absolutely oblivious. Mm-hmm. Um, and my wife and I had desired to wait you know, until they were a little bit older, but we had no choice. Um, So they were both five years old. 
Now, we are having this conversation at a time when the whole world is responding to the death of a man and a father by the hands of police, uh, two two men and, and two fathers, one in Minneapolis, and that was live stream. The other one was a black father shot in the back after he fell asleep in the Wendy's drive-thru, and the discovery of bodies of two young black men in California found hanging from trees. So it feels like the talk right now for all of your children would feel particularly fraught in this moment. Emmett, do you feel that? Or are your kids, they're a little bit older, are they more prepared than you might have thought at this moment? Well, I don't think we're ever prepared for watching the maiming, torturing, and murder of Black people on social media. Uh, So I don't think we're ever prepared for that. And I don't think there's any talk that can compare ourselves and our children for the heinous, you know, just, you know, trauma that we experienced. Um, you know, I have the privilege of my oldest son is the fourth. I'm Emmett G. Price the third, and he's Emmett G. Price the fourth. And we share a name, although we were not named after uh, 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 this beloved brother. Uh, we share a name with Emmett Lewis Teal. And mm. so from my oldest son's, you know, early years of, of learning about the intimacy of our name, uh, him being named after me, me being named after my father, my father being named after his father. We also have, uh, you know, uh, added the name of Emmett Lewis Till, who was 14 when he was murdered. And so that that notion of the intimacy of proximity of just your name creates a hypervigilant notion of, of, of who you are, even as a black man for myself and a black young man for my, my teenage son. But we're never prepared. I mean, we're as I told my son the other night, both of them, it's, it's unfortunate that having been raised in Los Angeles and having uh, protested and, 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 and done some other things during the Rodney King riots, as I was a young person then, to, to watch my sons have to make a decision about whether they're going to protest their own genocide mm. in their lifetime. I mean, it's just outrageous. Mm. Matt Presbury, your Black Fathers Facebook group has just passed 70,000 members this week alone. It's not just you. You you speak to a lot of Black fathers about this issue. Commonly across the board, were they saying they felt prepared to have the conversation or are they like Emmett saying, you're just never prepared? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Emmett and I feel like a lot of our members do as well. It is very difficult to really feel like you are prepared. I think, like, for me, even when I try to wrap my head around it, it's very difficult. And it's gotten to the point where, especially prior to now, like, we see some changes and we have some glimmers of hope, which which make us feel better to a degree. But prior to that, it has gotten to the point where I, I literally said, I don't know what else to tell my sons other than become white. Mm-hmm. And I say that in all sincerity. Like, it... It, it, it is a thing where you can tell them to be respectful. You can tell them to just obey the officer. You can tell them to not run. You can tell them to not do this or do that. And we have seen time after time that it doesn't make a difference. So it becomes very frustrating. You do have to prepare them, but there's nothing you can say or do that can actually fully protect them and that, That is really the hardest part in all of this. 
I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Emmett G. Price III of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and Matt Presbury, creator of the Black Fathers Facebook group. We're discussing how black fathers engage in hard conversations with their children, especially about these recent acts of racism. Here's David Aiello, who is an actor, speaking on Oprah's Where Do We Go From Here? This was earlier this month. I had made the mistake of thinking that things would be different for my son. And then the knee on the neck is so symbolic. I have spent so much of the last two weeks crying. And and one of the moments where that began was when I went to speak to my son and I didn't have the words. George Floyd wasn't resisting arrest. So it's not like saying to my son, put your hands on the dash, don't be confrontational. Those conversations are already emasculating to basically say, forget about justice in an interaction with the police. Uh, Emmett, I felt his pain in uh, expressing that moment. And I think maybe people don't understand how painful it is. I mean, you recognize the reality, but it's painful to try to talk to your kids about this. It's extremely painful, Callie. I mean, I think about my own father, um, you know, who was in Vietnam and uh, who went through all kinds of stuff that he went through that I didn't even understand when he was trying to talk to me. I just didn't get it. Um, You know, I get it now. Um, and I was just so grateful to have him in my life, even to today. And, and, and I think about how I try to tell, talk to my sons. And, you know, sometimes they don't necessarily get it. Um, and so we just try to talk to them, usually at the dinner table, and try to share with them. But the thing that is so painful is this, that not only is it about the, 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 the challenge of race in this nation and the, and the tremendously, you know, discriminatory practices and prejudices that we have, but I can name to you right now at least three, four, if not five, and I'm going to try it, teenagers mm-hmm. who were brutally murdered. Trayvon Martin, 17. Michael Brown Jr., 18. Jordan Davis, 17. Tamir Rice, 12, not even a teenager. Tony Terrell Robinson, 19. Laquan McDonald, 17. I can keep going. And the fact that our young men, our young boys are being murdered is just tremendously horrific. I mean, that's that should be painful for any human being whose precious lives they think is to live so that their children can have a better existence than them. And we're failing at that. Hmm. Uh, Matt Presbury, what about that pain of having this conversation? Yeah, it's, it's definitely painful, like constantly reminded of the fact that you can't totally protect them. And then I think the pain that also comes from feeling like an other, whereas, you know, we have to do this other kind of thing that some other people generally don't have to deal with. And I know we're focusing on black men, but we also have to understand the the attack on black women as well. And we do have to speak to that. Um, But again, back to spotlighting the, the black men who are being murdered and our sons who are so often targeted the way that you just move through society, you always have to be cautious about the things that you do because there's always a possibility that someone will want to call the police on you. And from that moment, you have no idea where things can go. It was something that really struck me when 
my youngest son, who was 15, we were watching, this is like a reality show or something, on police officers. And he spoke about a situation where a man, I think, was arrested. And he said, well, at least he didn't get shot. And that is really a hard thing to stomach when you have to look at that. And that is your, like, your only hope is that, well, at least he didn't get shot. So if I have an interaction in the police, nothing else matters as much as me not getting shot and killed. Everything else is just like a relief. Oh, I only got arrested or, oh, I only got this. At least I didn't get shot. And that is what really hurts. One of the things that I think makes such a an impact is the understanding that um, this goes on and on and on and is passed from generation to generation. This the talk, the trauma, the worry. Um, New York Times columnist Charles Blow asked the question for his column: When was the first time you were stopped, black men? Which is seems like a ridiculous and horrible question to ask. And, of course, he got many responses. So here is New York Times columnist Charles Blow last week on CBS Sunday Morning about the first time a cop pulled a gun on him. In fact, I was a college freshman in Louisiana, president of my class, and an officer had manufactured a reason to pull me and a friend over. When attempting to retrieve my license and registration, a comb fell out of the glove box that the officer mistook as a weapon. Out came the gun and up with my hands. When my friend objected to the stop, the officer made clear his power. He told us that he could make us lay down in the middle of the road, shoot us in the head, and no one would say a thing. Those are powerful words that I wanted to then turn the question back to the two of you, Emmett Price. When was the first time? Because horrible as that question is, I know there was more than one time. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the first time was, was for me um, in, in, I think, sixth grade. I was at Baldwin Hills Elementary School in Los Angeles, California. And, uh, you know, I came up during the height of the Bloods and the Crips, and uh, somebody had gotten shot on the other side of the schoolyard. And the police came, and, and you know, apparently I looked like somebody um, and, and, and grabbed me up. You know, but the most egregious time that I would say was in high school. Uh, my parents pulled me out of um, public school and sent me to a prestigious prep school, thinking that that would uh, keep me safe. And the the challenge was that the that I rode the public bus, and from where the bus stop was to where the school was was probably about a half a mile walk, and I had to walk through a residential area, and and time after time after time after time, uh, individuals in that neighborhood. Would, would do the Amy Cooper, or they would do the Karen, or they would do the Becky, whatever terminology you want to use for people who would weaponize the police department uh, to, to suggest that this individual did not belong in our neighborhood. And so on my way to school from the bus and on my way home from school, uh, from, from the school to the bus stop, I can't tell you how many countless times I ended up in the backseat of a police car to the point where the police eventually knew me. And actually, actually, you know, started laughing, uh, you know, every time, you know, which made it even worse every mm. time I was called. Oh, wow. Matt Presbury, when was the first time? It was when uh, my son was now 21. He was two or three. And my wife at the time, we walked him to his grandmother's house. 
and dropped him off. Grandmother runs a daycare, and no sooner than we dropped him off and start walking down the block, and we got maybe four houses away from hers, and we were surrounded by police, forced to sit on a curb and, and endure all of this embarrassment of people walking past, other clients who go to the daycare and people who know us and all of these sorts of things. And they told us that someone called and said that we had just purchased drugs from this house. Hmm. And it was it was the most bizarre thing because I promise you we walked maybe like 30 seconds before we were surrounded. And we had just dropped off our son, who's a toddler, at care. And now we're being told that we purchased drugs from someone or, or have been suspected to have just purchased drugs. That's heavy. And I wanted people to understand that this is these are not, you know, random, that this happens. I mean, it is random in a, in a sense, but it happens all the time. And it's it's now become, you know, personal history for just about every black man that I know. Um, I was taken with something that Eddie Glaude wrote in a Time magazine story just uh, this month. Eddie Glaude is a Time columnist and the chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton University. He said, we work hard at striking a delicate balance between unconditional love and providing the discipline our sons and daughters will need to survive in America. And wanted to give you that quote because the heaviness of this conversation and our our necessary focus is is so depressing but there is a joy in being black and 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 having a black family an intact black family um and all that that means but i wanted you to each speak to that emmett yeah i mean i'm just grateful i mean you know my parents are still you know together after all these years and uh, you know, my, my in-laws were together after, after so many years until my mother-in-law passed away. And me and my wife are encroaching on 20 years together. And the importance of family is powerful, uh, particularly when we think about our ancestors who went through, I'm going to argue, uh, more heinous stuff than we did. I mean, I've never been a slave. I've never had to deal with Jim and Jane Crow. You know, I, I, I've never had privileges uh, taken away from me vis-a-vis having elected black Congress people and, and, and senators. And then all of a sudden, you know, how many years and generations go by before we have another one? So so for me, the resilience of the black family and my dear brother did mention about black women, the empowering boldness and courage of, of black women to always stand, not even just by side, sometimes in front of putting their bodies on the line for us and then standing with us and we with them. And so there's something extremely powerful and prideful and, 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 and just exciting uh, to know that, that you know, uh, through it all, uh, we're, we're still here. Um, and, and, and there's a sense of resilience and, and a prophetic hope and a prophetic future uh, on the way there as well. Matt Pressbury, talk about the joy of of you being with your kids and of black families, even in the midst of this fraught time? Oh, absolutely. So being a father and being a husband is a tremendous joy. I was married once before for four years. And, you know, through it all, all I wanted to do, even through all of the troubles that we had as a married couple, I wanted to stay together for the sake of my family. Um, and I later remarried, and it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me. My wife and I have been together for 18 years, married for uh, 14, and she means definitely means the world to me. And, and having now four children, 
that that we have raised together. There's no better experience, and that's really why I have pushed so much in the work that I do to create the platforms that I have created because the world needs to know the the beauty and the joy that is involved in, in a black father for all of the struggles that we have to face and all of the things that we endure, they really work to make us stronger. And if we can get into a place where we really have an understanding where we can open up and be a support to each other, I think that's the one of the biggest things just because we deal with so much trauma and a lot of times as black men, we hold it in. But when we can celebrate that with the ones we love and understand that we don't have to go through these things alone and we can talk and we can have someone like I have my wife who has my back through it all and, and, and my front and everything else through it all. I think that's huge. So a final question to the two of you. Uh, we've seen the protests and they're quite racially mixed. A lot of white people are out there, um, you know, saying Black Lives Matter. And this is also Father's Day. So I wonder what you would say to white fathers about what they could say to their children, which would go a long way in keeping yours safe. Matt? So the, the first thing I would say is you, just, you have to face reality. I don't want to hear any of this stuff about I'm colorblind and, you know, I have a black friend, which is weird because I don't know how you can be colorblind and know you have a black friend at the same time. But people need... <laughs> People need to just be real about what's going on. This is something that we really have to face, and we should face it definitely in the tough times after people have been murdered. But I think we also have to have those conversations in the quiet times and and not only wait for something to jump off. You have to have those conversations because racism endures no matter what. Racism doesn't just come around because somebody got murdered. It's here 365, and this is something we have to tackle head on. So people just have to be willing. We talk about, you know, the tough conversations. Yes, it's tough. But when do we ever change things when we're comfortable? We don't. We have to get uncomfortable. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable and face some really tough truths about systemic racism and how certain people um, profit and benefit from it and how we need to work to change that. Emmett, what would you say to white fathers? Yeah, I would say to white fathers, one, check your privilege and understand the difference understand, you know, the platforms that you have access to. Number two, talk to your children. And then number three, and, and, and I'm going to go old school and, and, and be colloquial in this one, snatch them up if you need to. Because there's too many white fathers who see their uh, white sons and daughters headed down the wrong road in terms of integrity, in terms of character, in terms of being good citizens, in terms of having good morals and good virtues and values, and yet they do nothing. And so I'm suggesting that they need to snatch them up if they need to, which means that they need to get, get with them. Again, another colloquialism here, uh, to, to have that, that, that deep down hard conversation about you know, who you are and, and, and whose they are. I thank both of you for this very important Father's Day conversation and happy Father's Day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Emmett G. Price III is a professor of worship, church, and culture, and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Matt Presbury is the founder of the Black Fathers Foundation, creator of the Black Fathers Facebook group, and an educator in the Howard County, Maryland public school system. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at wgbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available 
available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Rebecca Tauber is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.